Well, several years ago, I was on a girls' weekend with my sister and my cousin down in the city. We do it every year, and we always try to, try to find something a little bit different to do. And this particular uh, weekend, it was raining in the city of Chicago. It was a June day, it was raining, and we weren't sure what else to do. And so we made our way over to the Art Institute of Chicago, which, rainy or not, is not a bad place to find yourself on Saturday afternoon. Well, I had been there several times before, but on this particular occasion, I noticed something a little bit different that I hadn't noticed before. My favorite section of the Art Institute is the Impressionist section. And the reason I like it is because the paintings there are all so gosh darn pretty, right? Uh, my favorite painting in that section is this painting. It's called A Sunday on La Grande Jade. Have you all seen this? You can't miss it, it's 10 feet by six feet, takes up a huge wall in the Art Institute, and I love just looking at the beauty and the light and the grandeur of paintings like this. Well, on that particular Saturday afternoon, I was walking around that same section, and all of a sudden I came to a painting that didn't feel like it belonged. And when I looked at the painting, I thought, well, surely this doesn't belong here, not, not in this kind of beauty. Surely this doesn't belong here. It's gotta be a mistake. And I stopped dead in my tracks, and this was the painting that made me do that. Pretty, right? <laughs> it's called um, Calf's Head and Ox Tongue. That is what you're looking at, and it's by a French artist by the name of Gustave Cabot. And I was so intrigued by this painting that I couldn't help but to walk a little closer to see what it was actually doing there. And it had a little uh, caption posted next to it. And it said something to the effect that the reason that this painting was put in that place was so that we would be reminded in the midst of the beauty and the light and the life of this world that there are dark things that happen. In the midst of our beautiful Sundays at the lake, we live in a world that also has heartache and pain and destruction and death. This painting was not placed there by mistake. This painting was placed there as a very intentional act of the creator. And if you've spent any time in this world at all, if you have turned on the news, if you've read through a ticker on your phone, if you have opened the pages of scripture, or if you've even spent any time in the story, story of your own life, you know that for all the beautiful things in this world, even when we place our hope and our faith and our trust in Christ as the sovereign Lord, as the loving creator of this earth and our own lives, even when we do that, we can't escape the painful reality that in this life, beauty and pain, joy and tragedy, life and death, for better or worse, like it or not, live side by side. And they don't just live side by side in this world, but they often live side by side right in our very own souls. And so this morning, as we continue to journey into the story of Lazarus, particularly this morning into the death of Lazarus, 
no matter how uncomfortable we get, no matter how heavy in this room it gets, and I have to confess, it's going to be pretty heavy because I think I have people from the 9 o'clock service that are still a little angry with me for how heavy it got in this room. But you know what? I am not going to apologize that this, for that this morning because you know what? We're going to keep walking toward this painting, and the reason that we're going to keep walking toward this painting this morning, no, how, no matter how heavy it feels, is because this painting... The dark places of our life are where we are most changed, like it or not. The dark places of our lives are often the places that we are most reminded of the hope and the light and the life that only Jesus can bring. So forgive me now, but we're going to keep walking towards it. So if you have your Bibles with you, oh, go ahead and open to John chapter 11. We are in week three of a sermon series about the life of Lazarus that we are going to continue looking at this whole way through Lent. So to catch you up to speed at this point, in case you uh, missed last week, uh, we know a couple of things about what ha what's happening right now. So we know that a man named Lazarus is sick. And he's not just sick with a cough or a cold or the sniffles. He is gravely ill. And in fact, he is so gravely ill that his family fears that he is not going to make it very much longer. We also know that Lazarus is a very dear friend of Jesus. In fact, we see in verse 3 that the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, actually call Lazarus the one that Jesus loves. As Dan and Eric pointed out last week, he has eaten with Jesus, has eaten with Lazarus. He has stayed in the house of Lazarus. They have journeyed together. They have laughed together. They know each other well. And we also know that Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, also are friends of Jesus. They also call Jesus one that they love, and in turn, Jesus loves them too. And not only do they call Jesus a person that they love, but they also have placed their faith in him. They call him Messiah, Rabbi, Teacher, Lord, God with us. And so when their brother became so sick, they thought, who better to help us out of this situation than Jesus? And so they sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, and they assumed that Jesus would come running, that he would come swooping in to save the day. And we see from last week and we see from the scripture that not only did Jesus not come in and save the day, but he stayed where he was for two more days. And so the question that we asked ourselves last week was what do we do when Jesus is late? What do we do in the waiting? What do we do when it feels like Jesus is lingering? But this morning we're gonna pick up this story after those two days because this morning we see that it was after those two days that that is when Jesus decided that the time was right, not the chronos time, the ticking of the clock, but the kairos time that, that is God's perfect timing, that that is when Jesus decided it was time to move. And so Jesus says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea, now it's time. Let's go back where Lazarus is. And the disciples, probably like any of us would do, rightly so, they say, Lord, are you crazy? Don't we remember last time you were there, the people tried to kill you. And you want to go back there? 
And I love it because Jesus just kind of ignores it. Like he doesn't even respond to that piece of it. He just moves on and he teaches them a little bit about what it means to walk in the light and what it means to walk in the dark. And then he says this, and we're starting with verse 11. After he had said this, Jesus went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. We would do the same thing, right? When a friend is sick, when someone we love is not feeling well, we say, you know what, sleep is the best thing. Let him sleep. And so they say, Jesus, let him sleep. And Jesus, had, we see here that Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples, of course, thought they were he was talking about natural sleep. So then Jesus just had to tell them plainly. And he says very plainly and very straightforward, Lazarus is dead. Now, of course, we know the ending of the story. We know that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead as a foreshadowing of Jesus' very own death and resurrection. And we know that he is going to do it for the glory of God. We actually see this twice in the scripture. When Jesus first got word that Lazarus was sick, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And then right after Jesus breaks the news to the disciples that Lazarus is dead, he says, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. I am glad I was not there. And why? So that you can believe. Jesus says, just you wait. You wait and see what I'm going to do. But even though that's the end of the story, you have to remember at this point in time for the disciples and for Mary and Martha who loved Jesus, their brother, their friend, this person they couldn't live without, they didn't know that. To them at this point in time, Lazarus was dead and they were never going to see him again. And for any of us who have felt that weight of that loss of losing someone we love, we know how much that hurts. And we know that we can point people to the light and we can recite verses and we can say, you know what, this is going to be for God's glory. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. And God works out all things for the good of those who love him. And all of those things are true and we know it up here. We know it. But you know what, when you're sitting in the agony of grief of someone you love, your heart tells you something different. So when the disciples heard Jesus say, Lazarus is dead, and Mary and Martha faced this finality, I think it's safe to say that all they feel and all they see, not is the light that Jesus will eventually bring, but all they feel is the darkness of the tomb. You see, Mary and Martha are no longer wiping the sweat from their brother's brow. They are no longer jumping up at every knock on the door to see if Jesus finally has showed up. They are no longer in this time of lingering or waiting or waiting in hope and anticipation of Jesus' imminent arrival. At this point, the machines are unplugged, the monitors are turned off, and they are faced with the unbelievable, impossible reality that the life and healing and restoration that they hoped for was not only not coming, but it did not come. 
And by it, I mean he, because they had put their faith in the healing power of Jesus Christ, the one whom they called friend, who they called Messiah. He didn't show up. And so now our question this morning changes from not what do we do when Jesus is late, but what do we do when it feels like Jesus isn't going to show up at all? Well, Mary and Martha did the next thing. They did the only thing they knew how to do. They got up. And they took the dead body of their brother and they wrapped him in strips of cloth and they sprinkled perfume on his body and they put him in a cave that would be his tomb and they rolled a stone over it and they said goodbye. And for four days, the scripture tells us, four days they sat in their grief. Four days at this time was very significant because there was a Jewish belief that for the first three days a body was dead, the spirit could hover around the body and choose to enter back into the body if it wanted. But on the fourth day, the spirit would flee, it would go into Sheol, and all hope would be lost. There was no chance here. And I imagine that fourth day would have been a particularly hard day for Martha and Mary. But I also believe that it was no coincidence that Jesus chose to arrive on that fourth day because when Jesus came on the fourth day and raised Lazarus from the dead, no one can say that it was for any other reason than the power of God that brings dead things to life that Lazarus was alive. For those of us who have been in a tomb moment, for those of us who have felt the darkness and the weight of that, you know, it can be death. It can be the death of someone we love, but it can be a lot of other things. It can be illness. It can be a hard time in our marriage. It can be the day we finally had to sign the divorce papers. It can be miscarriage, infertility, job loss, financial stress, broken relationships. Or it could simply be that you are feeling so disconnected from God that you just feel lost. You don't feel like you have purpose. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what your life is about. It can also be things that we do to ourselves. And look, we don't talk about this a lot in church. A lot of times we talk about the circumstances that take us to our dark places. But I think in a sea full of sinners saved by grace, we also have to acknowledge that we can get put in the tombs by the consequences of our own action, by the consequences of our own soul sickness. Sometimes we are not the inflictors of wounds. <laughs> Sometimes we are. Sometimes we are perpetrators. And you know what? We've injured the people we love and we don't know how to fix it and we can't find our way out of it. And we're so overcome with shame and guilt and our own brokenness that we're crying out for God. God, where are you? Because it feels like I'm in the dark and you are nowhere in sight. And for Martha and Mary, not only are they dealing with the pain of their tomb and their loss, but they are also dealing with the very real thing that happens so many of us when we find ourselves in the dark 
they have this conflict in their soul that all of a sudden maybe Jesus isn't who they thought he was. Maybe he wasn't the Messiah. Maybe he wasn't who he said he was, and maybe he didn't come to do what he said he was going to do. You see, faith and doubt are not antonyms. They can live by, side by side right along with the joy and the tragedy, and that's okay because our God can handle it. So is this a fun sermon for me to be preaching so far? <laughs> Give it to the new girl. Talk about death, destruction, right? You know, I have to confess, I feel the weight of this room. I feel the weight of it in my so own soul, and everything in me wants to just lift the moment. Right, turn up the lights, let's tell a funny story about my kids, let's do something just to ease the tension. All I want to do is take you by the side of the face and I want to turn your face away from the picture of the skull and the tongue and the blood and I want to say, let's go back to the lake. Let's look at the light and the beauty and feel the sunshine of the lake. Let's go there. But here's the thing. If we don't learn to sit with the weight of our ashes and our dust, especially during Lent, but any time, if we don't learn to sit with the weight of our ashes and dust, if we don't learn to sit with the grief of the tomb on Good Friday, what do we have to celebrate on Easter morning? What do we have to celebrate on Resurrection Sunday? Friends, our culture, even our Christian culture sometimes says, you know what? Don't go in the tomb. In fact, avoid it by any means necessary. But if you find yourself in a tomb and if you have to be in the dark, get out of it as quick as you can. Claw, gnaw, dig, whatever you gotta do, get yourself out of there as fast as you can. Suck it up, get over it, move on. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Friends, that's not even a thing. Look, Google that, okay? You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's impossible. <laughs> Just get out of the tomb. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Look, as much as we hate our tombs, and believe me, I hate our tombs. If I could get rid of all the tombs in this world, I would. I would follow in the footsteps of Jesus when he is at the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says, Lord, Take this cup for me if there is any other way. If I had my way, I would say, Father, take all of our cups. No more death. No more tragedy. No more horrible storms. No more earthquakes. No more school shootings. And Lord, for the love of your name, no more cancer. Can we just take that cup away? Can we just get rid of it? But here's the thing. If we could get it rid of it all, if we could take it all away, if we could fix ourselves, if we could just live in the sunshine of our happy little lives, what need would we have for a savior? What hope outside of this world would we have to long for? Friends, I like this world, but I don't want to end up here forever. What hope do we have? What good is it that Jesus is preparing a place for us what good is it that he'll wipe every tear? There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old has gone and the new has come. What good is that? If we can't feel the weight, what do we have to look forward to? 
the beautiful and necessary part of our tombs, and I really hate this part, I really, really do, but for any of you who have been through a tomb experience, and I'm assuming it's pretty much everybody in this room, we know that like it or not, our tombs are where we are most changed. Our tombs are where God transforms us. Our tombs are what God uses to change our character to become more like him, which is what we're supposed to be doing in this life. We are supposed to be reflecting his glory to a broken and hurt world, and the only way we can do that is if we know our God better. Our tombs are what God uses to expand our capacity to show his grace and mercy to other people who are in their tombs so that we can sit with him, sit with them in their time of need and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Our tombs are what God uses to lead us to repentance because our tombs are those places where we're like, God, wow, I really am kind of awful, right? I can't do this on my own. I, I am no good without you. I can do nothing apart from you. Lord, it's got to be your way, not mine. God uses our tombs to remind us to hold loosely to this life and our plans because as James reminds us, our lives are nothing but a vapor. They are nothing but a mist and they are here today and they are gone tomorrow. And if we don't have something to push us towards the light, friends, we will never be transformed in this life that is here today and gone tomorrow. So why did God leave Lazarus in the tomb for four days? Why did he make Martha and Mary and his disciples go through that? Believe it or not, it's because he loves them. And he loves them too much to leave them how they are. He wants to show his character and his light and his life to them. He does it because he knows they need the dark as much as they need the light. And he does it because he knows that it will ultimately be for God's glory when we go through our tomb experiences and come out the other side so that people can point to God and say, God did that. It's so that we may believe. Paul has his own tomb moments and he reminds us of this when he writes to the Corinthians. And he says this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, listen to this, so that we despaired of life even itself. They didn't even want to live. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Only God does that. He was delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Not just once, he will continue to deliver us. Stephen Smith in his book, The Lazarus Life, that we are following along in this journey says this, a religion that does not embrace the tomb is only a feel-good religion, not an authentic relationship with God. If we fail to address the soul-stirring questions that the tombs of our lives ask, if we pretend that the tombs don't exist and we ignore the difficult parts of life and faith, then we settle for something less than authentic transformation. 
Our faith becomes sentimental, our songs become folksy, our prayers become hollow, our sermons become talks, our Bibles become just like any other book. Without acknowledging the pain of life, we will not know the abundant life Jesus came to bring us. The tomb is where the resurrection happens. In fact, the tomb is the only place the resurrection happens. The places in our heart where failure reigns and despair rules are the places where transformation begins, not ends. We can have no life without entering death. Let's go back to the scripture as we close. Let's go back to Mary and Martha. In verse 17, it says, on his arrival, Jesus found that the tomb had already, I'm sorry, that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And then in verse 20, it says, when Mary and Martha heard that Jesus was coming, sorry, when Martha heard, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you see how honest Martha is with Jesus? Do you see she is not afraid to lament to him, to throw a little his way? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then in the next sentence, we see a glimmer of hope and faith because she says, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, Martha was a good Jewish girl, and she knew that the Jewish people believed that God at some point would come back and gather his people, and there would be a bodily resurrection for them on the last day. But listen to how Jesus responds. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not an event. It's not something that happens in the future. It's not a day in time, Martha. I am the resurrection in the life. I am the thing that overcomes death. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then Jesus asks Mary, sorry, Martha, this very pointed, direct question. And he says, Martha, do you believe this? You see, he asked Martha if she believed this right in the middle of her darkness, right in the middle of the tomb. Her brother was dead. And she was staring in the eyes of the man that she believed had failed her. And Jesus says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this? And somehow I put myself in the place of Martha, and I think somehow she mustered up something deep inside of her, some kind of courage, some kind of light of the man that she believed in and knew, and she says, listen to this, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into this world. Yes, Lord, I believe in the midst of my darkness that you are exactly who you said you are, and you have come here to do exactly what you said you came here to do. Friends, there is good news in this story, even in the darkness and even in the death. 
John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was light to all mankind. For the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Friends, there is no tomb too dark that Jesus can't overcome with his light. There is no person, no situation, no circumstance, even one you are facing right now, that is beyond the hope of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Our tombs don't stop God. Being dead doesn't stop God. The God who brought Lazarus back to life is the same God that wants to bring life and light to every corner of this dark world. And so friends, even in the midst of our tombs and our darkest, grab on to that today because God's grace is always big enough. It is always big enough. Why does he do it? Because he loves us and he does it for his glory. It's not about us. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it, whatever it may be. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning, Lord, in the midst of darkness and light in our own lives, in the midst of joy and pain, Lord. And it's all a big old mess inside of us, Lord, but you know that because you are the God that sees. And so help us, Lord, not to hide from you, but to take all that is inside us, Lord, and put it before you and let you shine your light in it. Because, Lord, you remind us that you are the light of this world. There is no darkness too dark for you to overcome, Lord. Thank you for bringing life to the places that we feel there is death, Lord. Help us to believe even in the midst of the dark that you are exactly who you say you are and you've come to this world to do exactly what you say you would do. Lord, we believe in you, we love you, and we claim these promises for ourselves this morning. It's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen.